0: This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival.
1: Don't hook up things to the network just because you have a LAN port on it, um, or just because that might be needed. Ask your, your programmers to say, hey, just for the next, you know, ten minutes or hour or something, I want you to pretend you're a bad guy, and I want you to tell me all the bad things you could do if you had access to this system. The site tech and the lead, the lead techs, uh, those, those are actually the most well versed in terms of network security and in terms of what things could be vulnerable, but unfortunately they're not part of the conversation as much as they should be.
0: Okay, before we get started, I'd like to quickly tell you about an email series we put together called Easy AV Upgrades. And it's just a few emails, a series of emails, that gives you some new ideas about how to upgrade pretty much any AV system. All the upgrades require little to no extra hardware, And they're really all just a good way to get the most out of your investment or to add more value to the systems that you're already delivering. And you could get that by heading over to CatchTechnologies.com slash AV Upgrades. That's CatchTechnologies.com slash AV Upgrades. All right, on with the interview. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. This is Patrick Murray. And today, the last week or so, actually this year, cybersecurity and AV has been in the news quite a bit. So I'm really happy to talk, talk about that today with Paul Konikowski, a longtime AV technology manager. Paul, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we jump into all of the different things that are going on out there in the AV world, I'd like to start with your story. So tell us about how you got into AV, how you got started and uh, how you wound up where you are today.
1: Sure, sure. Um, I started uh, actually doing uh, information technology help desk support uh, back in, in high school and college. And uh, I studied computer engineering uh, in my undergrad. And, and by the time I got out of college, I really just wanted to uh, work in concerts. You know, like a, lot, like a lot of folks in AV had a big musical interest. I played guitar. And so uh, I kind of hung up my degree for a little while. I went to work for uh, a company called Snow Sound uh, in the Northeast. Became a sound guy basically for, for a few years. I was still doing some IT support. Um, on the side in the winter because it was very seasonal work, but um, really just got into the whole concert and event scene uh, and learned, you know, from the ground up. Uh, after a few years of that, I I uh, moved into AV integration. Uh, again, starting on the on the ground side, you know, building racks, pulling cables, uh, terminating plates, hanging projectors, uh, and that sort of thing. And um, and then eventually landed a job uh, as a basically a junior engineer, um, where I you know I, I took my own AutoCAD AutoCAD training, I got my CTS, and, and I convinced the company to to hire me, even though I've never really done that role. And they really took me under their wing and, and taught me you know all about uh, codecs and and uh, you know at the time RGBHV switchers. Um, touch panels, all of that stuff. So uh, I did that for uh, a couple of years and then um, decided to move to California. I was living in Connecticut uh, at the time. That's where I grew up and uh, was really just looking for a change in, in scenery and, and to live somewhere else, you know, for a while. So I made the move to the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in, I believe it was 2007. And I uh, began working as an AV consultant there, uh, really learning the, the interactions with the architects and the MEP engineers, uh, specs, continuing to do AutoCAD drawings, worked on a lot of higher ed out there, uh, some churches, uh, some city council chambers, those sort of projects, and, and really you know enjoyed the consulting role. And I was out of work for about two months last summer, um, which uh, was, you know, hard at the time, but in hindsight, it really was a blessing because it really made me look at where I was in the industry and where I wanted to go. And um, I decided that I I wanted to get a little bit more into cybersecurity. Uh, And so I took a short course from from Harvard uh, called... Cybersecurity, Managing Risk in the Information Age. Really highly recommend that for anybody. It's like eight or 10 weeks long. It gives you the basics of incident response plans, um, policy frameworks, um, a lot of case studies and things like that, and, and really, really enjoyed it. So decided to continue on that path and um, applied for a master's program at Georgia Tech, which is where I got my undergrad. They had just announced a, a new online cybersecurity master's program. And then I started the, um, the master's program in January and uh, really enjoying it. it. It's quite challenging, but um, you know it, it feels like the, the right thing to do. And then I'm also working for a consulting firm that's based in DC who goes uh, and, and handles uh, a lot of military projects, government work. I hadn't ever really worked in the military government uh, space before. And so learning their design criteria, their, um, you know, the DOD directives and how you you have to, you know, work through a lot of paperwork, really, and, and uh, interfacing with different military groups, and a lot of those also have a cybersecurity consultant on board and they have cybersecurity breakout meetings now. And so I've been sitting in on some of those and, and it really goes nicely hand in hand with the school that I'm getting. So uh, like I said, it, it, it was a blessing to get let go because it really opened up my career and, and made me think about where I wanted to be uh, in the future. And I really do see the need for, for AV folks that also know cybersecurity and and really just have it on their mind, you know, and and think about it when they're hooking things up to a network or um, you know uh, talking to clients. And and I believe that AV manufacturers and integrators, if if they haven't had to had to deal with this already, very soon they're going to have clients that say. Okay, if you want to, you know, be a part of this project, let's see your cybersecurity policy. Let's see the process you go through when interfacing with our IT department. You know, what do you do when there's an incident? Um, you know, what, what what are your third parties that you, that you're working with, and and what are what are their policies? Uh, and so that's really where I'm I'm headed. Um, I, I do know uh, I'm learning a lot about the the nuts and bolts at an academic sort of student level, but I'm really, uh, the program that I'm in now is really more focused on policy and the, and the written uh, side of it all, you know, navigating different laws, GDPR, uh, local state laws, you know, uh, having incident response plans and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, still, still freelancing for uh, the few companies that I mentioned and, um, you know, sort of half and half with that in school. It's a good balance, at least with with, with no extra time.
0: Thanks for that. Um, very interesting career arc, starting at an IT help desk and uh, winding up where you are today. You mentioned things like RGBHV, which kind of gives us an idea of, of the timeline and how long you've been doing this. And When, just to give a little background of what's on my mind recently is during those RGBHV days, that was kind of like the beginning when network jacks started showing up on AV equipment. And we started using the network for control of devices. And we treated it just like we did serial, right? It's just a message that goes from one device to another. So um, things were unauthenticated and unencrypted normally, right? We would use Telnet. So there was normally not a login. Um, you normally didn't encrypt the message, so it was in plain text on the network. If somebody was sniffing the network, they could see what it was, big deal. They know how to turn on the the video projector. And, and now in today's day and age, that's really not all that acceptable unless I have this theory you could segment, you could secure the network itself. So if you have unsecured devices on that secure network, they're still kind of in this shell. Of, uh, of protection, but that takes a lot of planning, right? You have, need to know where every port is for that network. And we have these extenders that extend network ports to underneath the table. And then that's no longer a secure network anymore because anybody could plug in there. And uh, if they know the right commands, then they could do stuff with your system. They could even upload programs if they have the right software. So there's been lots of changes and we haven't really been keeping up to date with, uh, with the security aspect of things. Now I know this is new for everybody, but I'm always looking for what's the practical application. What does it look like on the job site? What does it look like when we're installing and commissioning a system? So uh, maybe we could just theorize a little, giving all, all of your background. You've been consultants. Um, you're looking into cybersecurity. You've taken some online courses about that. Now you're working uh, in some military projects and seeing what their processes are like. And they even have security officers, cybersecurity officers. Just maybe um, paint a picture of what an ideal, let's say we're working with the same devices that we always have. We have some unsecured devices. We have some that could be... Uh, Enabled with a password. What does what does that look like in an AV project? Does a consultant? Should they be specifying? Certain practices should an integrator be saying raising their hand and saying hey I've got unsecured devices on here. What do you want to do about that? Who should be managing the passwords? Maybe just give us your thoughts on on what that process should look like Sure, sure Um,
1: well, it's it's Important to start the conversation as soon as possible. A lot of times, it's a, an afterthought or um, post PO uh, sort of conversation where you start talking about IP addresses and, and VLANs and things like that. Uh, but it's much more important to start it exactly. way earlier and and to really you know go into a project and and say immediately we'd like to speak with your you know your CISO. Or your, C, you know, your IT department, and we'd like to get a copy of your uh, cybersecurity policy, if possible. And here's ours. You know, here's our internal and our external policy, and just start it that way, and make sure that those are in agreement. Uh, and then really look at uh, each asset that that you're going to be um, having in your system or interfacing with, and try to assess. Early on, just at a paper level, what what the impact of 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 each one is, you know, in terms of you know, there's this CIA thing: confidentiality, uh, integrity, uh, and availability. And and if if these devices were taken offline or were attacked, you know, how bad of an impact would it be? Would it just be an inconvenience uh, for a day or two, or would it really impact, you know? operations or, or in the military, you know, would it impact, a you know, a, um, a military operation, you know, cause a lot of these things are, you know, a lot of these, uh, military things are, are drones now. And so folks might be, uh, flying drones from some of the buildings that I'm working on tactical sort of thing. And so, you know, really assessing how, how big of a deal it is for each, each device and categorizing that, Somewhat, and so at least you have, uh, you know, some level of what's important, you know, priority-wise, and what's maybe not so, you know, critical. Uh, And then really looking at, okay, well, well, what about, you know, um, access to these devices? You know, who who really needs to access it physically? Who who should be able to access it? You know, on a network? Is it a role-based? uh access system or is it individuals um you know do you do, do and then also looking at it because a lot of times it's called least privilege you know giving uh only to certain individuals access to a resource but then you also want to think about another principle that i've learned about called least least route or least route and um and that's something I that, you know I, I didn't really think about before but that's actually saying it, don't just limit the individual uh, access to a device, but limit the device's access to other things on the network. You know, don't don't hook up things to the network just because you have a LAN port on it, um, or just because that might be needed. If, if really think about every time you 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 draw that that line that that network connection, why am I doing this? You know, and can I do it? Without that, can I can I do this? Can I set up the AV control network so it really doesn't touch the uh, you know the local area network, or when it does, that it just touches at one point, and then maybe at that point you can set up a firewall or you can set up some other access controls so it's not a bunch of devices sitting on the local the local network it's really just one maybe just your controller you know um or of course video conference codec those need to go on the network and so really spelling all of that out early on before you know i don't want to say ma- you know ideally before the sale if you have a consultant on board or you're able to get in there and have those conversations early But certainly, you know, if you do, if you do make the sale before you start really doing any of the implementing or the or the drawings or any of that, really having that conversation up front with the client, so all of the expectations are set very early on, and and really try to put on that that malicious actor hat. A lot of folks just don't think about what could happen. You know, like the bad guy that's on the inside um you know a lot of people will look at a device and say um well you know there's this vulnerability in this control system but you'd have to go to the AV rack and you'd have to plug in your you know your laptop to it and then you could launch a command shell and like you said up- upload some malicious software or whatever and and they they think well that will never happen but you have to really look at it from that regard and say okay if i have a malicious actor internally what damage could they really do here? And, and then you start to think about things like just the USB ports on these devices or the SD card port. And what would happen if someone, you know, um, either just damaged the device or was able to upload malware through your USB port? You know, if you have a, uh, an AV device sitting on a local area network and you can easily plug in a USB device uh, to it that has, you know, some sort of malware... Or worm on there that can then find its way through the network to other people's computers and and that that's a new reality that we have to think of. Um, the the target breach was a real eye opener to the government um, because the the systems got infected through the H V A C control system and that control system was hooked up to their point of sale devices and so no one really thought you know that was that was really a threat before, but how often are we as AV integrators sitting on the same network as HVAC control or, you know, these other systems and you think, well, no one's gonna, no one has access to that, but do they have, you know, physical access to it? And so really thinking about it on a, what they call a defense in depth strategy, where you look at it at every layer of the OSI model, uh, including the human layer. Um, and so I know I'm talking in really broad terms now, but you kind of have to start there. You can't just start with, oh, do we want this, you know, on a VPN or not, you know, or, or things like that. You have to start on the broad: uh, who's going to have access, who should have access, what devices should be on the network, and should they be on the network at all? And I'm one of these people that's now, you know, I used to be the guy that if I saw a land port on a device, a projector, for instance, like you mentioned. I would just, you know, call for a LAN outlet on the ceiling and say, "Well, we might need that in the future or we might, you know, if we might put in room view or something else, we're going to want that." Now, I'm the complete opposite. I, I actually say, "Why are we doing this? You know, why why on earth, you know, would we put anything on the network because our stuff is a, a pit could be a pivot point or or another way into the to the network." So, really take a um you know, take a a put your malicious actor hat on and, and say, how, you know, how bad could I damage the system if that was my intent or, you know, can, can users accidentally, can, can a user accidentally do something here? You know, uh, we extend, uh, we extend room PC USB imports, you know, inputs to the table all the time. Right. We use these USB extenders, you know, and we, we say, Oh, though that's for, uh, you know, the keyboard or mouse, or maybe it's for, you know, someone to load up their own presentation. Well, you're, you're basically giving them a key to your, to your rack in a way. Uh, and you're, you're extending something that may not, you know, may not be such a great idea, even if it adds convenience. Is there another way to do that? That's more secure where you're not, you know, giving anyone access to that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, from 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 my standpoint, it has to start early, and it has to be a conversation that you have with your clients before you get down to, you know, IP addresses, and uh, a lot of people, you know, talk about VLANs. Well, VLANs are great for keeping uh, traffic off of other parts of the network. You know, segmenting in terms of traffic and bandwidth. They're not. They're actually not a solution for uh, security because VLAN headers, as far as I understand, again I'm still kind of new to this, but you can you can spoof those pretty easily. Um, you know, a header in a packet, you can change the a man in the middle to change the header, uh, and so it's it's not hard to jump to another VLAN uh, or or to uh, inject packets or whatever. So it's, it VLAN is one of those things in AV where a lot of people think, well, that'll keep me secure, but it's really not. And, and teaching folks about that, uh, I think is important. So, um, you know, and then, and then talking to the, um, the IT departments and, and talking about, um, access control list and closing ports that don't need to be open and, uh, monitoring that traffic, you know, uh, Enabling logging on your devices. Um, a lot of our, you know, the recent vulnerabilities that came out in AV devices, you know, um, using a touch panel to spy on somebody or something that that one came out. Well, is the device logging everything that's going on? And so, if there's been no reports of someone doing this, can you go back into the device and look at the logs? Uh, and so, really, you know, enabling those logs and Trying to centralize them somewhere, if possible, so that you know a forensics team or a security group can look at the logs at when they need to, or they should actually be doing it more more periodically. Um, and then, you know, we we just password protecting everything, um, even the switches. And and one thing I learned in the Cisco Intro class is that you can put a password on a Cisco switch. But it's not hard to retrieve that password or reset it. And there's different ways to put in uh, passwords where you're encrypting the password or you're, you're restricting someone from just pulling it up. Someone that plugs into the configuration port, can they just pull that up? Um, and so uh, really trying to lock down instead of taking this open uh, attitude, really thinking, well, why am I doing this? And when I do it, what's the most secure way to do it? um and then monitoring it like i said logging and monitoring looking for abnormalities you know should a, a device be um be transmitting data out you know like it, it, you know what kind of data should a device be be sending out and are you monitoring for those abnormal transmissions is someone keeping an eye on that or is it sending an email to someone saying hey by the way Someone came in over the weekend and fired up the conference room system. Now, maybe that person was just testing out a big presentation that they had to do on Monday, and they wanted to make sure they felt comfortable in front of the team. But it's that sort of anomaly detection that you want to start looking for. It's not just about uh, antivirus, which is looking for you know known signatures. You want to start looking for just weird activity uh, in the in network. So I know I'm kind of rambling here, and um, it, it may not be all that practical, um, but uh, I think it's important to to really have you know that attitude, and then you can start drilling down to uh, you know locking unused ports, access control list, um, firewall um, implementation, uh, intrusion detection systems. Um, what other ones am I blanking on here? Uh, always have backups of your software. really, uh, I think it's important to have the conversation and to teach your programmers, your engineers, your network architects to to put security first you know don't don't do it as an afterthought.
0: So I've got an entire page of notes now um, <laughs> and we could end the podcast Careful. right now but um so all of this, if I'm competing on a project that will be decided on, uh, last, on, on lowest price, I'm going to lose if I implement just the third of what you said. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I, I, um, to me, yeah, you
1: might lose that business, um, but you need to think about uh, how much it's going to cost you when there is an incident, right? And so if you're not implementing the security controls both internally and on your project, then you are making it easier for attackers to come in and steal data. And that sort of thing uh, is going to cost you a whole lot of money. And so is it, you know, is it worth it? You know, is it worth it? it, it you can sort of look at it like, like, um, like speeding, right? Uh, on the highway. You know, sure, I can drive a little faster and and get there a little bit sooner. Um, but I'm I'm risking one getting a ticket from from somebody, right, uh, from a, a police officer uh, or a state trooper. But you're also risking, you know, killing somebody, you know, yourself, your passengers, or other people in the car. And uh, so it it turns out to be, you know, not worth it. And um, and so if you're If you're, you know, being the lowest bidder and and going around these sort of uh, practices, then, you know, it's going to come back and and haunt you in the end. Um, It's also another another way to think about it is I know some bidders, especially out West, was really shocked at some of the Wild West attitudes where some bidders weren't, you know, they may not be doing as built, you know, of jobs, but some weren't even doing drawings. You know, they were winning jobs and not even doing drawings. And they say, well, you know, sometimes we do a little pencil sketch or, you know, sometimes we, you know, we have just general, you know, we, we do mics uh, one and two. And then we start doing, the, you know, wire tags and things like that. We just have sort of conventions that we all go by. And I was like, you're doing you're doing installs without drawings? Like, I couldn't believe it, but that's how they were winning them. And they would go in and get it working and then run away. And have no documentation no you know no training anything like that and it's just it's gonna catch up to you and you have to you know be disciplined enough to to say am i gonna be that kind of provider
0: well that's an interesting point it, it will catch up to somebody of course the reputation of a company is is uh, very important but the, the install that gets done and you run away and there's no drawings it catches up with the end user. So circling back to the security question and implementing all of these good practices, um, we're not lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, you're not a lawyer, but w- where does that liability kind of fall in the ends? There's black boxes uh, developed by manufacturers, there's an integrator who installs the stuff and commissions it, but it's it's ultimately on an end user's network. So I can imagine that that question could get pretty complicated.
1: Yeah. And there's no really good answer to that right now, um, because there's so many different laws in each state, uh, in the state and the state side. And, um, you know, then there's the GDPR, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But what I've learned is that there's there is no uh, where do you stop? And look at look at third parties. Right. So let's say you're an end user, a large uh, financial firm or something like that and you get breached, you know, and, and then they start looking at, you know, your policies and what you've done. They really look at what you've done to prevent it. And the more you, you show that you've been trying to prevent it and not be negligent, that actually takes down your liability quite a bit. Um, just just showing that you were doing cyber awareness training and you, were, you, were, you had a policy in place. And then they start saying, okay, well, let's look at your, you know, your third party vendors. Um and because maybe one of them was the was the whole, you know, and where you work like that. So you start looking at that. And then from there you can actually go another another round out, right? To their third party vendors because we're all connected in the end, right? So uh it's it's a moving uh target and discussion and um who who's liable there's there's no clear answer right now. And so what you want to do is is sort of you know, cover your own butt a bit, implement, like I said, those, the cyber awareness training and other things internally so that if you are called into court or, um, you know, you are asked to, you know, Hey, it looks like, it looks like this, this may have come from you, you know, that's a whole nother topic of attribution. You know, where did the, where did the problem come from? Um, you can at least show that you weren't being negligent, you know, that you weren't, just ignoring the problem and that actually reduces your liability quite a bit. So, um, yeah, to me, it, it, you have to at least go one one rung out. You know, uh, all 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 AV uh, integrators should be looking at uh, the policies and uh, practices of all of their suppliers. Right? If I'm a manufacturer. I should be looking at the policies of all of my suppliers and all of my customers, um, and so at least go one, you know, one degree out. And if, if if the answer is we don't have a policy, or we we you know we don't we don't have that in place, uh, you might consider not doing business with them because you know that's that's a, a it's just you know or put, at least putting some pressure on them to to get that done. Um, how far it goes out I, I haven't seen that happen yet where the av uh folks were uh, i think there might have actually might have happened a couple of years ago where the av you know um provider was held liable for for a data breach or something like that but uh, there's other there's certainly other um examples outside of av land like I said, Target and their HVAC system provider, it looks like that's where, that's where that breach happened. So that's, that's really not all that different from an AV provider, right? We're, we're kind of at all, yeah. in the same sec, second tier. And so I really want people to learn uh, from those things and then try to apply them to the AV, AV folks. But it's, it's a moving target. That's what I've learned is that uh, depending on the court, the state, you know the the actual case. How far they go out to check for, or how far should you go out to check for other people's security policies? Um, you should at least go one, you know, one step out. You know, you don't have to ask for your your vendors, their vendors. You know, but at least ask them, and then they should be asking their next. Yeah. You, so
0: you, you mentioned the first thing to look for is if they have a security policy, um, but once if they do have one, what's just some some brief? Uh, what, what are you looking for without becoming a cybersecurity expert or actually going to a lawyer and and having them review it? What are just some some bullet points that that you're looking for in a security policy? Sure, um, you're looking so that they have a culture of awareness
1: throughout their entire. Organization, and so you want to see things like um, an incident response plan, uh, what they're going to do, and who they're going to contact. Uh, what media outlets? The you know they're you know if something does happen, like a ransomware attack or something, who who do they? What do they do? You know what do they communicate to their employees? What um, what do they communicate to the outside people? What do they communicate to their third-party vendors? Um, you want to look for things like cyber awareness training, and that's ongoing um, because the biggest, you know, the biggest uh, cyber threat for most organizations is the human factor, is social engineering, either a phishing email um, that someone gets or they open up their Gmail uh, on their work computer or they maybe grab, a oh, I see this pile of USB drives uh, on, the, on the lobby counter. Oh, someone dropped those off. You know, and they grab a USB drive, thinking it's a free USB drive. Well, that's actually a step that that penetration testers do. I know some guys that are penetration testers, and they they do do the phishing campaigns and the emails, but they also will drop off uh, USB drives at hospitals or schools, and then once someone plugs them in, then they have access to that person's computer. Um, and so, having uh, training, ongoing training. Where you you train all employees about just the basics of being more cyber aware, having um, penetration testing done. There's there's uh, software and software service companies that will provide both. Um, and if you have less than something like 500 employees, or you only do you know 12 phishing test emails a year, something like that, it's free. A lot of them are just free for smaller companies. And uh, you start by just just short little videos. You, you tell your employees, "Hey, I need you to watch this video before you start your day today." And it's a five minute video, uh, or ten minute video, and teaches them a little bit of basic. And maybe you get one of those a month. And then every three months or so, you send out this, this uh, phishing test email and see. And it, and it it gives you a report of how many employees actually opened it. And so let's say it's you know fifty percent. Well, as uh, as the the time goes on every three months or so that you're doing this, you should be seeing that percentage go down. Um, and uh, you should be also getting an idea of who's not opening the email or who is, who's not watching the videos. Maybe give them a little extra training. Maybe say, hey, you've been selected as a you know, vulnerable person or something. I don't know. Um, and so getting back to your original question, what are you looking for uh you you want a company that does that. Um and you want them to show that it's that the percentage of people opening that they that their training is effective. And that's not just for me checking out another company, but this actually falls back to that liability in court, you know, in, in that sort of cases, or when you talk about um cybersecurity insurance. Um, if you can show that you're training your employees And you can show that that training is effective over time. You may not get it down to zero, but you might reduce the the opening of these phishing emails from 50% down to 25, let's say, you know, you're showing that you're actually making strides towards security. um, And, and you want to see that, that sort of attitude about it. And then you want to see policies about um, bring your own device policies and you want to see uh, things about you know USB drives you know and 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 how those shouldn't be brought in, or how uh, also you want to see things like um uh what's it called data data protection I just learned about this where you're you're monitoring people leaking data you know if I do save a spreadsheet from the uh, from the server to a USB drive is that is that monitored? Is that logged somewhere? you know what's what's stopping an internal employee from emailing uh, financial data out to someone uh, and 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 when that happens, can you attribute that to the person? And so you want to see things like that in place, and that shows you that they do um, you know have this attitude of security. And, um, and then, you know, bigger, bigger corporations will ask you sometimes to modify your policy because it doesn't quite match theirs. You know, they may say, oh, we, we need, you know, I don't, I don't know a good example, but they may, they may ask you for a bit more. Um, and they also may ask you, well, how are you going to interface with our IT department? What's your standard process? For going through, you know, if it's a military job, how do you work with the military to make sure that by the end of the project, you know, all of the paperwork and all of the access is, is in order? And they want to see that process outlined before you even begin. And so, yeah, it's a lot it, it, It's a lot of work, Patrick. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. And it's one of the things that, one, you have to start somewhere, kind of like you said earlier. Um, But it's also never-ending, unfortunately. Um, It it, it can go on. And and as more and more threats emerge, your training is going to have to be a bit uh, adopted. And it's just this never-ending thing. And so you you also want to just have a plan for it and say, well, this is how much we're going to spend this year on cybersecurity. This is how much we're going to spend this year on training. Um, There's ways to calculate that based on your risk. Uh, a lot of times it's it's actually cheaper just to buy insurance than it is to implement some of these uh, programs or whatever. But there are ways to at least get the basics down. Uh, and then, yeah, look at your cybersecurity uh, insurance policy also. Uh, and sometimes a company may want to see that too and, and make sure that they're
0: covered. So a lot of the things you just mentioned, I think are, you know, like you said, it's a lot of work, no doubt. And it's an ongoing thing. I think it's easy to imagine how to implement that in, a, in an office setting, but what, what I'm concerned about is how that's going to play out with field technicians. So when you're on a job site with a laptop, it's not uncommon to uh, put the source code on a USB stick and give it to your colleagues so we could run off to another room or to use things like Dropbox. To share code or store passwords in an Excel list that's put in the Dropbox to store code. So that's really my main concern. Do you have any ideas about how to manage that being on site? You mentioned this company before that wasn't doing drawings and we're moving more towards, I just don't see any other way than to completely remove that on site programmer and handle everything in a very Process-oriented IT-like manner, but I know that change will not come quickly, and it may take some kind of uh, an event to really capture people's attention. But but what do you think about that? That on-site technician who who needs to have that data kind of mobile.
1: Um, I think it, it it kind of falls back to changing changing the attitude uh, to the more cyber-aware type group. You know, some of the best. Cybersecurity guys that I've met in the industry are actually on-site tech. It actually tends to be, and this is maybe a little bit age, a bit of ageism, so I apologize for that. But it's when you look at the folks that are uncovering some of these vulnerabilities uh, or blogging about them, uh, a lot of times they are the 20-somethings, you know, uh, that are just getting into the industry and they enjoy. Uh, looking for these sort of things and and the older uh, generation, or at least the older mindset um, is more of for availability and keeping things easy and so I, I, what i what I would recommend is really trying to uh, implement that within an organization. Let's say you have a group of let's say you're an integrator and you have a group of programmers, and they're all kind of doing their own thing. You know, they they may have templates or something that they go off of. They may have a giant server uh, uh, database, not even a real database, but just folders, you know, of all of their old code. And then they may have some sort of uh, web access or, you know, ways for techs in the field to quickly grab code and implement it on a device, right? That's that's not an uncommon scenario right now. Well, there's a whole host of problems with that because um first of all, can can someone go in and just delete all of that, you know, with, with one swipe? Can they offload that entire set of code to a, a USB drive and and take it somewhere else and steal intellectual property? Um, and so uh teaching them how bad it could be in other words in a way you want to teach them to think more like a bad guy and um and and teaching them okay we're putting in we're putting in this new system which may be a little bit more um uh a little bit less convenient for you but here's why uh here's why and and then also uh maybe taking a maybe a little bit more of an open source attitude um, where one programmer, uh, and I don't know if this is totally true or not, but I think in a lot of cases, the programmers, they sort of, they, they get, they get their basic code ready, they go on site, they tweak it to get it working, and then they walk away. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. Yeah. And they rarely have someone else check their code.
0: Ah, code reviews. Yeah.
1: So doing code reviews and security code reviews where you have, you know, some sort of, uh, I don't know, it could be a Microsoft Teams or something like that, where you say, hey, uh, you know, looking for a, a security review on this code and have someone else look at it with a different set of eyes. Instead of getting this working, what vulnerabilities do I see? You know, putting their code out there, either within an organization or on a more industry-wide level and saying, here's my code, putting it on actually a website and giving it away, that's a very different attitude than most AV integrators have. Most AV integrators think that's my work, why would I put that out there? Um, but if you put it out for more scrutiny from the good guys, right? From folks that are gonna look at it and say, hey, by the way, these are the risks that you're taking by doing what you're doing, you might consider this instead. By doing that, you're you're identifying those risks before they get on site, right? Before it's actually in a room and hopefully before the bad guys figure it out. Yeah. Um, and so taking a more open source sort of attitude, doing more, more cross-checking, more security auditing of code, at the same time, locking it down in a way where it's still available to the tech. But, you know, if that tech does download it uh, from your Dropbox or something, that there's some record of that you know, that, that you know who's who's taken code out of your database and who hasn't. And you can attribute uh, correctly if someone does steal your entire database or if someone does start messing with other people's programs, you know. Um, you know real, again, it, most people don't like to think about, did I hire a bad actor? But you have to assume you've hired the next, you know, Edward Snowden. Um, you have to assume you've hired somebody who uh, may be uh, financially uh, influenced to do something bad for your company. You know, they, they may they may be offered a certain amount of money by a competitor or by someone else who says, hey, if you get me, if you, if you can set up this thing where I can see into this meeting or I can see, you know, then I'll give you this much money. And there's also blackmail. A lot of people, you know... Uh, there's stories about people getting blackmailed into doing things that they not would not normally do. So you you kind of have to put on that hat somewhat and ask your ask your your programmers to say, hey, just for the next, you know, 10 minutes or hour or something, I want you to pretend you're a bad guy. And I want you to tell me all the bad things you could do if you had access to this system. And it just changes that mindset a bit. So and I honestly, the onsite techs are probably the best first for that you know they're probably the ones that know how to do the most damage back when i did it support um we used to kind of joke about you know how how much damage we could do if, if needed or something like that i had a guy that worked i knew a friend that worked in uh network backbone you know on the internet provider level i forgot who he worked for but i said to him one day over dinner i said so you know, you're kind of in there, you know, managing the internet, you know, he was in DC area. And I said, how bad, how much damage could you actually do? And he said, he could probably take down most of the internet on the East coast for a couple hours, you know, and nowadays I bet he couldn't, I bet nowadays they have a lot more protections in place, but, and he's a good guy. He's not going to do that. You know what I mean? Um, but you have to kind of put on that black hat for a minute and say, all right, if I was a malicious actor, what could I do? And sometimes it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes you might say, well, if I had access to this and I went into a conference room and I loaded this code, then I could do this in theory. And you might say, well, you know, the chances of that actually happening,
0: then you could assess the risk yeah. or or
1: it might be a high chance. Uh, of something happening, i.e., the Zoom vulnerability that that was shown last week. That actually was a, a huge worldwide chance. But you might say, well, what what kind of damage actually could be done? You know, like someone can launch a webcam in someone's office. Okay, that's definitely an invasion of privacy. But can they steal files? You know, can they steal social security numbers that way? Well, no, they can't. You know, or, or probably can't. So um, you 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 kind of do well. How how wide is the impact? The site text they they and the and the lead the lead text uh those those are actually the most well versed in terms of network security and in terms of what things could be vulnerable but unfortunately they're not part of the conversation as much as they should be
0: yeah i think that's the uh That's probably the most actionable advice you've given is just taking an hour a week and doing some role playing. Um, That's something everybody could execute on. And even if you don't take action on any of those things, at least you know about it and you could report it to your customers. And again, you're getting it out there in the open. But at the same time, I'm really skeptical because of a lot of the things you mentioned, code reviews, tracking who has the code. You said it, more, 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 do more. And the problem is budgets aren't getting bigger. And until security is budgeted for, th- these things just are not going to happen unless we just completely the way, uh, change the way that uh, projects are run. I'm going to
1: counter that just, just for a moment with a little bit of slightly political talk. There was a, you know, a tax reform passed, what, about a year ago, year and a half ago which gave C-corporations a whole bunch more money in their pocket, you know, instantly um, because of this tax reform. And so where did that com- Where did that money go? Um, you know, it doesn't apply to all integrators and all manufacturers. If they're an S-corp, they didn't benefit from it as much. But that was a big chunk of extra cash uh, coming back where they didn't have to pay taxes on it and it you know I, i don't know where it went to in a lot of places so you take that and then you also take the fact that our economy is banging right now uh and um supposedly the av industry is exploding and so what are you doing with this extra money are you is it just going to the c suite or is it going towards things like cybersecurity? and i believe that there is money for it and there is time for it. And you don't, it doesn't have to cost you all that much. You, like you said, it could be an hour a week. Um, or you can set up also just little rewards programs. If a, if, a, if someone in your company identifies a vulnerability, they get a $25 Amazon gift card, you know, uh, or if a, if a programmer says, you know, brings up something at one of these meetings that they don't get shushed, you're being paranoid, you know, don't worry about that. That they get rewarded, and so it changes the attitude of the company. And if you're giving away a hundred dollars worth of gift cards a week, that's a, nothing compared to how much, you know, tax reform money that's come in, or how much it's going to cost you when something goes wrong. So I believe that there is money for that, and and it doesn't have to be a race to the bottom in terms of bids and that sort of thing. I understand, you know, a bit, we got to be competitive in this, that. That's, that's a whole nother topic we can talk about, Patrick, the race to zero in terms of, um, in terms of uh, uh, profit and, and uh, margins. But, uh, you know, if we can't do it now in this economy, uh, what are we going to do when it goes, when the economy goes south? You know, what are we going to do when there's, you know, really no money laying around? So I believe that we should be taking that extra cash that we're getting in the industry right now and putting it towards these things. To me, it's not, there's no longer a choice. uh, If you relate it to, I often relate cybersecurity to IT or social media as a company's small, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever, they might do their own IT, you know, and as they grow, they realize, Hey, I need to outsource this. And at some point they say, Hey, I need an IT person in you know, in house now that's normal, right? Uh, same thing happened with social media. They they probably tried to do it themselves first and did a terrible job, and then they hired someone like me who might know a little bit more about it. But more importantly, I made it my priority to get it done. You know, you didn't wait till the end of the week to write a blog. I would have it done first thing Monday morning. Um, and then eventually, they all hired social media people to be in house, right? Um, that know way more than I ever did. Well, now the same thing is going to happen with cybersecurity. People are just sort of trying to do it by themselves. And then they'll, they'll probably start outsourcing a little bit to get you know, a little bit of consultation. And then eventually, they're going to hire people in-house that know it because they're not going to have a choice. You, you can't not have a website right now, right? You can't be in business and not have a website. But you know, 30 years ago, there were people saying, what do I need a website for? What do I need, what do I need a social media person for? And guess what? They found that money because it's, it's, it's not a choice anymore.
0: Great thoughts. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, do you have any final thoughts for us? I
1: want, I, I, I want, uh, and we, we didn't touch on this, but I hope that the AV industry, you know, uh, looks at, uh, with some recent developments, not just in zoom and, and other, you know, Crestron and other vulnerabilities, but really looks at the Draper ransomware attack because the Draper and it's still developing. There hasn't been much, much, uh, much information on that, uh, what the impact was. We definitely know their operations have been impacted and they're, they're, they're probably losing a little bit of business um, just, you know, trying to get back up to speed. But I want everyone to think about, well, what if their data was breached? You know, what if all of their financial data and what if all of their employee social security numbers uh, were released? And I I actually wrote a a paper about that. It's going to be coming out soon. I paper school attitude, an article about that. That's going to be coming out soon. And, and to read about um, things like uh, the Sony hack and the target hack and uh, the, you know, city of Atlanta and some other ransomware attacks that have happened and, and stop thinking that it's not going to happen to you. Because the, the bad guys, you know, they first went after the big, the big financial corporations and the government. Um, and then they, they went after, you know, Target and uh, Anthem and these other ones. And you think, well, those companies are so big. You hear these numbers from, oh, my goodness, it, millions of people, whatever. Well, they're working their way down. And now they're going after local city government, um, water companies, school districts. And when they start to get wind of how the AV industry, you know, hasn't been taking uh, security all that seriously, they're going to start coming after us. And, and the researchers are already doing it. You know, you start to see more security researchers now looking at AV devices and discovering the vulnerabilities in them. So it's already a trend in that world. And if it's a trend in that world, then it's also a trend in the bad guy world. And so, you know, this, this Draper one is the first big ransomware attack that I've heard of in the industry. And I just want companies just for a minute to think okay, what if Monday I came in, all of our servers were down, all of the computers had a big skull and crossbones on it, uh, the phones didn't work. What would we do um, to, to get out of that situation? And then also, what if that bad actor? took all of our data and put it out on the internet? You know, what are you going to do? And it, it's scary. I know I'm, I'm sort of, you know, putting the fear there, but it's much better to think about it before it happens and have a plan in place than to wait until it does happen. So that's, that's my
0: final thought. All right. Well, thanks for uh, helping me lose some sleep tonight. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing
1: we're gonna yeah, we should do like a, a, a horror story, not like a campfire story, like exactly. <laughs> where we talk, we almost tell ghost stories around the campfire. Just scare the crap out of each other.
2: Yeah.
1: So uh, the best way to find me or reach me is to search uh, PK Audiovisual, all one word, um, on on the interweb. And you can that's my handle on Twitter, PK Audiovisual. That's also the name of my um blog website. And uh, it's you know same my handle on LinkedIn, which is another great way to reach me. Uh, if you want to try, you know, spell my name. It's K O N I K O W S K I, and you can find me out there. But uh, you know, PK out of Visual, you'll probably uh, hit at least one of the sites that way, and you can reach out to me that way.
0: Excellent, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Patrick. I really enjoyed it. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer. Join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either-or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of IdeaBox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at LearnAVProgramming.com.
2: You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the LearnAVProgramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, When it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses, it was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, And I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset. Uh, which is more important, and and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again.
0: Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinesurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.